people being willing to ask questions, even if they're a little bit afraid that they might look silly. We all would be in a better world if we all were a little more willing to highlight our uncertainties and ask about what we don't understand and really make the unknowns more visible. So if you're listening to this, the next time you're tempted to say, or you're saying to yourself, wait, I'm not sure how this really works, ask that question out loud. And I think that's a real contribution. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alquist. Welcome to Innovation for All. I'm your host, Shana Alquist. I'm so excited about today's episode. Uh, I spoke with David Robinson. So David is a visiting scientist at Cornell University, where he works on their AI policy and practice initiative. So specifically, he studies the design and management of algorithmic decision-making, particularly in the public sector. David's also managing director and co-founder of Upturn, a public interest organization that promotes equity and justice in the design, governance, and use of digital technology. David has lots of interesting things to say. He is a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. He's written for Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. So our discussion today focuses on how AI intersects with social justice, a term that he'd prefer I didn't use. Uh, But we're going to talk about things like how although stop and frisk as a practice has ended in New York, uh, the data from stop and frisk is still hurting minorities today. We also talk about how those of us who are not quantitatively inclined can actually evaluate whether these artificial intelligence systems are any good. We also talk about technological solutions to reduce police brutality and why David no longer believes that police body cameras will actually help. Enjoy. So David Robinson, welcome to the Innovation for All podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I was hoping that you could give the brief version of who on earth you are and what it is you do. Because when I was preparing for this podcast and I wanted to share it with my colleagues, it's like he works at this this place, but he just moved to this other university and he kind of works on innovation, but kind of also policy and kind of data, but there's social justice in there. So how would you describe who you are and what you do? Well, it's a fair question. In fact, but one year when I was home for Thanksgiving, my little brother looked at me and said, David, you'll always have a job that takes five minutes to explain. Uh, so hopefully it won't take that long. But just to say, so I came from Upturn recently in this most recent adjustment. And that's a place that I co-founded in 2011 with a good friend of mine. I'm trained as a lawyer and he's a computer scientist. And what Upturn does based in DC is to promote equity and justice in the design and governance of use of digital technology. So this is really an area that is touching every aspect of the civil rights agenda and of the broader effort to build a better world. Because as you know, the technology is coming in really to every corner of of the world we're trying to build. And so Upturn is a place that partners with advocates. And so a lot of my work, for example, has been helping frame issues in ways that are accessible for uh, diverse coalitions of people who need to understand something. Like, for example, what is AI doing in criminal justice and how do we get a handle on and shape that impact. So that's what Upturn does really is policy. And then I've just stepped into this new role at Cornell at the Department of Information Science as a visiting scientist here. And that's a chance to look longer term and sort of bigger picture at the intersection between technology and social change. And I, in particular, am really interested in this question of How do we make decisions about the technology that has power in our lives, especially uh, public power? So when government is going to use an algorithm to make important choices or to judge people, how do we set the dials on that? Uh, What kind of a process do we use? Who gets included? Whose voices get heard? That's the sort of question that I'm I'm focusing on now. And I, I think it's fair to say that I've always had one foot in the world of practice and one in the world of scholarship. And 
I find that those experiences are really helpful for each other and that being engaged on the ground gives me often a very different perspective on which research questions are the most interesting. So, yeah. That's Can you what give I'm an example of how that interaction with actual application has affected the way you think about your research? Sure. So I think when people think about fairness and civil rights and AI, there's a tendency, especially among engineers, there's a tendency to think of fairness as this formal property that we can define and we'll give it you know, a very clear numerical definition that the error rates are the same across racial groups or something like that. And then when we build a tool that satisfies that formula, then we'll say we've achieved fairness. I'm exaggerating slightly in terms of how much simplifying goes on, but it's roughly like that much of the time. And I think in working with people in practice, it's made me much more curious about what happens when we're done writing the software and it actually goes out into the world. So let's say we're going to advise a judge, for example, about who is risky and should go to jail and who's not risky and should be released. How does the judge understand the data that he or she is being shown? Are we clear about how much uncertainty there is? Are the recommendations getting followed? Are they getting ignored? Those sorts of questions turn out to be really important because that's what really is going to determine how these tools actually impact people's lives. And so in an academic setting, the fancy word for this is people will say, oh, it's a socio-technical system that's happening here and we need to think about it. What they, what they mean by that is that if you only look at the running code, if you only look at the software, then you really can't know what the real world impact is because real world impact is a property of people interacting with technology and with each other. I'd like to back up a little bit before we get too technical and make sure that people have a good understanding of, so a couple things, defining a few of these terms, so machine learning or artificial intelligence and getting more concrete about some examples where, so where is big data having a social justice impact? And I'd love for you to walk through a couple different examples of that. Sure. So first of all, when we say machine learning or AI, typically, if you're talking about what does an engineer mean when they say that, they're talking about a system where the rule that the computer is going to use to make decisions is actually learned directly from the data. So in other words, if it has machine learning, then the computer figured out what the rule would be, so to speak. If it doesn't, then a human programmer wrote the rule that the computer is going to use. And what has happened recently is that with the increases in scale and velocity, the amount of data that is available and processing power, more and more problems have gotten to the point where machine learning can be useful to address them. In other words, there's this growing list of things where if you put a computer program into place and you run data through it, you're going to find useful patterns and the software is going to be able to do something practical and helpful as a result of having found those patterns. And this is something that is popular in lots of different institutions including in government. One example is in the context of policing, where police have to decide where to allocate their resources. There is this growing interest in using machine learning to decide where the police patrols should be located, or in some cases, even to decide which people in a community the police should focus their attention on. And the idea is that we're going to use historical data to find patterns that might allow us to predict where the next crime might occur and where the police could go. Another example is in the context of trying to prevent uh, harm to children. So like in the context of a foster care system or child protective services office, they get a tremendous number every day of calls about possible problems if it's a large a large department or a large area, and they have to decide how to prioritize those and which ones are the most important ones to follow up on because they can't investigate every call that comes in. And so there again, 
The idea is to use, in an increasing number of places, they're starting to use machine learning to look back at the data they have about old outcomes from earlier cases and find patterns. Okay, what did we know up front that could have clued us in that this was going to be a bad problem and that kid was going to be okay? And can we use those patterns to make our next decisions? So on first glance, this looks very evidence-based, right? It's not people making haphazard guesses about what may and may not work. It's literally turning to the existing data that we have to say, well, this is actually how it is. So I know we're going to talk a lot about this, but can you start hinting at some of the social justice implications of this? I mean, I think yeah, evidence-based is such a funny term. One of my favorite slash least favorite places where it gets used a lot <laughs> is in the context of sentencing, right? So someone has committed a crime and we have to decide what to do next, what sort of a, a sentence to impose. Increasingly, places are using statistical models to predict the likelihood of recidivism. And can you say what that is? Right. So in other words, what's the chance if we let this person out that they will do something bad again is something you can try to statistically measure. And so courts are using sometimes those forecasts when they make sentencing decisions. And this is called evidence-based sentencing. But the irony is that it's ignoring the specifics of the case and using a statistical generalization instead. I mean, the judge is considering, one would hope, the specifics of the case, but the tool doesn't know anything about them. The tool's just making statistical generalizations, right? And so, in a sense, it has less evidence than the judge does. And yet, because it's numbers, we tend to think, oh, that's evidence-based. Whereas, you know, the judge's expert or what technically gets called clinical judgment is not seen as being equally evidence-based, even though, of course, the judge, you know, is considering lots of evidence. So this is one problem, right? It's the machine learning model maybe has, it's based on statistical evidence from the past, but it may not be taking fully into account the particulars of of any given case. What are some of the other problems in these models broadly? Sure. So, I mean, if you think about just for your, I guess, for your listeners who may be less familiar with this, when you hear AI or you hear algorithm, what you can think of is just substituting your mind the words pattern finder, because that's what these systems really do. They find patterns in data. And so let's say you're trying to predict who might be arrested in the future, and the data you have is who got arrested in the past. Well, it's a little bit like holding up a mirror to the world around you to figure out, to get a picture of what's going to happen in the future. And you can build a good mirror, one that's very faithfully reflects what's in the data and gives you some pattern back and tells you who's likely to be arrested. But the question is, is that the world that you want to live in? Is that pattern that exists in that past data the one that you want to reproduce? And this is important because what happens is we only have certain data about certain outcomes. We have what we've measured before, and then we have something else that we'd like to know. And very often, the thing we really care about and the thing the data actually describes are a little bit different. So for example, we might care about the risk that someone would go out and hurt other people, right? Because we want people to be safe. But the data we have isn't about whether in the past someone hurt someone else, it's only about whether someone got arrested or not. And it turns out, if you look at the data on arrests, most arrests are for minor technicalities. And so what ends up happening is what we really want to know is dangerousness. But what we have measurements of is who did the police choose to arrest? And if we're not careful, what can end up happening is that we end up pretending that the data we have describes the thing we care about. So in this case, pretending that data about arrests tells us who is dangerous, when in fact it tells us who did the police arrest. And if we forget those differences, then very often it's going to operate in ways that are prejudicial to minorities. And so just to spell this out, I mean, in the case, let's say, of arrest, you know, New York City there was the stop and frisk litigation where a federal court found that 
they had an unconstitutional practice of stopping black and brown people, particularly young men on the street and, you know, frisking them and searching them. And that led to more of those people getting arrested, whereas other people walking by weren't getting stopped. And so if they had, you know, marijuana in their pocket or whatever it may have been, they could walk by and wouldn't get stopped and they wouldn't end up in the data set and they wouldn't get arrested. And so, you know, you have this data from this period when we know the police were being unconstitutionally discriminatory. Meanwhile, New York City right now is developing a new risk assessment tool that uses this data as its training data. It's arrest data from the time when stop and frisk, which was subsequently found unconstitutional, was taking place in New York City. And so we know that that data from that time when the police were doing the wrong thing is not supposed to predict who's going to get arrested in the future. And yet, because it's the data that we have, it's getting used. And so in practice, what that means is that the data that we have from the time when things were discriminatory and unjust and when racism was reflected in those numbers in ways, I mean, which is not to say that's not always the case, but in this case, we have a court telling us, you know, unusually, we have a court telling us these numbers are racist. So essentially, it's that because we are basing these models on existing data, but we have evidence, to use that word again, we have evidence that uh, during the time that the data was collected, that the data wasn't collected in a pristine environment, but that really it may have been capturing existing biases that now these machine learning models are now, are essentially going to formalize a model around these. Absolutely. And when you, and when you think about combining that, so the fact that we have some bias in the way we're sampling the data, when you combine that with the fact that we're also playing this game of make-believe where we pretend that arrest means dangerousness, right? You add those together and what you end up with is a system that's going to call black and brown people dangerous. Okay. So it sounds like in this case, the existing problems are that the data may have been bad. And that, so by that, I mean that it was biased to begin with. And that also we were conflating like sort of proxies, like you're saying, dangerousness and arrest, but that one isn't really the other. And that, that also holds in an additional amount of bias. That's right. And with that second thing, another way of putting this is that in order to be able to predict something, you have to be able to measure it because you have to tell the computer, here's cases where the thing I care about happened and here are cases where the thing I care about didn't happen. And so you're stuck with this limited world of things that you have measurements of and that's what you're able to predict. So another example is in another earlier in the, in the courtroom process, there's a question about, okay, this person's been arrested. They're presumed innocent. Can they go home or do we have to keep them in jail? And the idea is that if they would flee the jurisdiction, if we let them out, then we're supposed to put them in jail. Otherwise not. That's the rule, uh, at least in New York, for example. And so you have a world in which we're trying to predict who would flee the jurisdiction. But of course, we don't know who fled the jurisdiction in the past, right? What we know is who missed their appointment with the court in the past. Because if someone doesn't come to their appointment, then we have that record. But most people who miss appointments, you know, they forgot they had an appointment or they couldn't get childcare or they couldn't get transportation, right? And so we have this variable of any of those things happening, this variable of failure to appear, okay? And we can predict future failure to appear. But again, like with arrest and dangerousness, the same thing happens with missing your appointment versus fleeing the jurisdiction. We end up with this, this coarser data that measures this broader thing, but we're going to treat that as if that was a reason to put someone in jail. And again, what that means is that people who really, they need a bus pass or something like that, end up jailed instead because we're tiring them as high risk instead of understanding why they didn't or why they might in the future be unlikely to appear for court. Well, and I'd love for you to unpack that, the difference there between just error and sort of systematic error that gets into the social justice space. So why are these kinds of errors bad for quote unquote social justice? So 
And I think maybe you have some feelings about that phrase. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. You know, I think the phrase has sort of been itself, the language has been colonized. And you, you know, you read these things about like social justice warrior or whatever. And I think for a lot of people, there's basically been a successful twisting around of the words where they find those words sometimes off-putting when, I mean, the reality is there are patterns to who suffers injustice in our society. And anybody who's interested in building an equitable society needs to understand what those patterns are. It's really a matter of having one's eyes open. And in the case of, you know, something like we were just talking about, about who's perceived as risky, the people who have those other problems, like, for example, having difficulty getting time off work or difficulty getting back to the courthouse, those people are very disproportionately likely to be people of color and people who live in poverty. And so when you build a system that treats people unfairly who have those problems, what you're building is a system that is going to reinforce racial disparities. And so I'm wondering if we can cover some other specific examples. So we talked about, you know, predictive policing. I know you had mentioned the foster care system and recidivism. What are some other places where you see these kinds of problems emerging? So another good example is education. So there's always been this challenge in public education about how, if at all, we should measure the performance of teachers. It's very hard to know what effect did this specific teacher have on the overall performance of his or her students. And so there's a new effort to use something called value-added modeling, which is basically an application of AI to this problem. Remember what we were talking about earlier, that you have to be able to measure something in order to make predictions about it. And so what they do in the classroom is they measure students' test scores on standardized tests. And basically, if you're the teacher and you have a classroom full of third grade students, they make a statistical prediction of how well those students are likely to do in general. And then if at the end of the year, the students do better than the system thought they were going to, then the system says, oh, this is a good teacher who made these students perform better than the average. Or conversely, on the other side of the coin, if the system thought that the students were going to get an 85 and at the end of the year they get an 82 instead, then the system says, oh, well, this teacher didn't do as good a job as other teachers because these students didn't do as well. Now, when you think about the reality of all the factors that go into student achievement, it's hard not to see this exercise as really, really problematic because a huge range of factors impact how an individual student is going to perform and how a class as a whole is going to perform. For example, if you have a class where there are one or two students who have very difficult life situations and who are acting out in class, that can prevent many other students, their neighbors and friends, from learning as effectively. Or, you know, there can be, I mean, there's a widespread problem in low-income communities, even of children going hungry which, you know, there could be an economic downturn or the factory in town shuts down and suddenly kids are a lot hungrier, but the model doesn't know that, but it's, it's going to be harder for them to learn. And so there's actually been some litigation about this. In Houston, the teachers' union sued the school district for using this AI formula to assess teachers. And the, t- the teachers' union said, you know, we don't even know how this system works. We don't know whether the data about us is accurate. And by the way, you know, this whole thing ignores so many factors that it's not really fair to pretend that all the reasons why students do better or worse are due to the teachers. 
There's a couple of things in there that I thought were really interesting. So I think one is, like you're saying, this gap between what we want to be measuring and what we actually are measuring. And in this case, you can imagine circumstances where there is a disruptive student in the class who's undermining learning for all, or that kids really aren't learning as well because they're hungry. And this measure might still be getting at something about sort of expectations that weren't met. These Maybe these students aren't learning as well as we would have liked them to, but that it's not the teacher's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's possible. And I think one thing that's really interesting to me is that the closer you get to the data, the more humble people in general are. So if you talk to the superintendent of schools, you're going to get a rosy picture about how AI is going to change everything and give us a detailed understanding of how each teacher performs. If you talk to people who are actually handling the data and running the regressions, the data scientists, they're going to tell you, look, it's extremely noisy, but we might get some useful signal here about which classrooms are having the most trouble learning. And maybe we can use that to then go investigate and ask, okay, what can we learn about what might have happened here? Well, I just think this happens all over the place, that the more you know about how the technology works, the more careful you're going to be about claiming what it can do. You know, I think one of the big problems is that decision makers who lead institutions don't understand what the limits of AI are. And so they're vulnerable to getting a sales pitch basically from a charlatan who says, hey, I've got an AI system that's going to solve all your problems. And, you know, for example, rate the performance of all your teachers or um, tell the police how to be 10 times as efficient or whatever the claim may be. And I think a lot of people who hold political power are not quantitatively oriented. You know, many of them are trained in the, in the law. And there's a sort of standing joke about lawyers often having picked a career because they didn't feel as comfortable with math. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think a lot of these people have a challenge because they've experienced reproach when they've asked questions about technology and even come down to things like trying to get their email to work and they had to call tech support and someone maybe talked down to them or made them feel badly because they didn't understand how some technology works. And then, of course, if you're the vendor and you're trying to sell, let's say, to a city council, if they ask a question about the technology, your best move often is going to be to say, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about that. We've got experts who will handle the details. Gosh, and I'm so excited to hear. One of the concerns I have broadly is how on earth do we expect government regulators or, like you're saying here, basically individuals who are non-technical to evaluate such highly technical systems in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's a hard problem. I think it's worth pointing out it's a cultural problem because we really need people to feel comfortable making clear when they don't understand something. So for example, a good question about many of these systems is how will we know whether it's working or not? Mm. Uh, And that often is a stumper for some of these systems. And, you know, there have been a handful of instances where we've seen people do this. People ask questions in a pointed way, and it can really be a game changer. And so one of the things that I am interested in doing through my work and by supporting others is really creating conditions for people to feel comfortable making clear when they don't understand. And I think we need also to expect for people making these tools really to create buy-in with the communities that are impacted by the tools. And that means that we should expect that it should be doable for people to understand how these systems work. And that if, as the person who's building a system, you haven't made it possible for people to understand the system, then you know, at least in a government context, that's a pretty strong argument against using it. Well, it's tricky because, so I I get the whole lack of transparency argument, right? Essentially, a lot of these models are like a black box. You put in a bunch of information, some recommendation comes out. And in some cases, the data scientist can't even tell you why a certain result, sort of which part of the model predicted or led to that outcome. 
So I get why that scares people. But at the same time, you can imagine some of our own mental models follow a similar path. So uh, I have a toddler right now and I'm seeing the development of human mental models through his eyes in a different way. And so when you see, for instance, a dog, right at his age, he's like, dog, that's a dog. And it's like, no, sometimes that's a cat. But even though I as an adult can tell him that, no, that's a dog and that's a cat, I myself might not be clear on why I came to that conclusion. Like, what is it about that creature that made me say, no, that's a dog, not a cat? And there is sort of this black box within ourselves that we're we're overlooking, but that we're really comfortable with. So in one way, I wonder if it's just that we're uncomfortable outsourcing that to a machine. Yeah, I think that's part of it that we're uncomfortable outsourcing. And I think this is a really, it's a really useful point to make because the kind of transparency I was talking about is a little bit different from the kind that people mean when they focus on this question of black boxes where the engineer can't even understand what the pattern is or or how it was found. Because what I am talking about is answers to questions like, what did the engineer do, right? Where did the training data come from? What exactly is it that we are even trying to predict? Those are the kinds of questions where the engineers have answers, but the people who live under the system often don't have answers today. And that can change no matter how complicated the algorithms get. Henry Ford once said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Sounds like Ford hired a bad user researcher. PhD Insights is different. They help understand the attitudes and motivations that underlie what customers claim. And this is good for business. So if your company isn't adding attitudinal feedback to their data pipeline, they're missing half the story. Learn how PhD Insights can help your company with pricing, product strategy, and positioning by visiting phdinsights.com. That's phd-insights.com. So you had mentioned earlier, a great question to ask would be, how will we know whether it's working or not? What should an educated consumer listen for in a response? Like what, what is a good response to that question? And what is a bad response? What should be a red flag response? Well, so, you know, when you buy like a cleaning product at the store, it'll often say, you know, if it's, let's say a fabric cleaner for your sofa, it'll say like, test on some part of the sofa before you use it everywhere, Right. And you're supposed to sort of check and see whether it actually works. The same is true for these kinds of AI systems. So in a government context, you want to have some comparison group where you're doing it differently or where you're checking or where you're gathering a baseline. So for example, if we're going to use predictions to tell the police where to go based on some idea about the underlying levels of crime, we probably ought to spend a little bit of our time doing some random checks of where the crime might be happening so that we can see whether we're getting a distorted picture from the way that we're doing it. Or, you know, in the context, let's say, of predicting who's going to get arrested in the future, one thing that's happening is people are, you know, ideally you would want to focus on what you really care about, which in this case, let's say, is violence. Let's say it's in a courtroom. We want to know who's hurting someone else. If that's what we care about, then the question should be, all right, can we measure that thing that we care about? Can we keep track of how many of these arrests were for minor infractions and how many of them really reflect a serious problem? So very often, it turns out that to really build good AI, we're going to need new data. We're going to need new measurements where we're really carefully measuring the thing that we care most about. And one of the big traps, one of the reasons that we end up playing games of make-believe about what the data means, is that it's very tempting for big bureaucracy to take the data they already have, the administrative data, like let's say it's about arrests or it's about standardized test scores in a classroom. It's the data that's already sitting there. Just using that to make predictions is much cheaper and much easier. But if we want to do a good job, we might need to send people into that classroom and measure how the teacher is performing, right? Or we might need to 
interview people about why couldn't they get to court, what, what problems they encountered. And I mean, that's what responsible approaches look like. So committing a sort of additional resources and a little bit more thoughtfulness around it. Absolutely. So before we move on to what people can do about this, both at a sort of regulatory level and at the individual level, I'd love for you to give a few more examples of places where data-driven issues affect social outcomes. Sure. So thus far, we've talked about government uses, but a lot of the high-impact uses are also happening in the private sector. And one example there is hiring. So increasingly, as places get inundated by large numbers of job applicants, partly because it's so easy to apply online, they have this problem of not being able to screen through all the applications. So they rely on AI to make a first cut often of who they're going to even take a look at. And sometimes also to help with the later rounds and even to assess people once they've gotten onto the job. So really throughout the world of work, these technologies are coming in. So, you know, one example is there was a a company recently that was looking at using facial expression analysis to try and assess how potential employees might perform at different jobs. And, you know, in any of these cases, that same question of, what are we trying to predict and what's the training data becomes very important. There's a whole world of questions around what do we know about how people perform on the job? So you imagine that you could go to a a big conglomerate, a big company with a bunch of executives and say, who makes a good executive? And you could look back 20, 30 years and you might find that middle-aged white guys who like to play golf make great managers. But the challenge is that doesn't mean that you're actually finding out who would do the best job today because the reason that those performance data are there is because those are the people who were allowed to succeed under the workplace culture or the world that existed when they were there and when that data was generated. What about applying for maybe home loans or credit? What do you see there? So yeah, that's an interesting area. I think a lot of people have the intuition that additional data from your social network or other sorts of factors might be helpful. But that's actually one area where the legal regime is pretty strict. There's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And so basically, data that's used to make what are called eligibility decisions, which include things like getting insurance or getting a loan, is heavily regulated. You have the ability as the consumer to find out what the data says about you and to dispute if there are errors in your credit file. And it also turns out that the data we already have for most people is very good at predicting the thing that we care about. So your credit score is an estimate of the likelihood that you're going to default on a financial obligation within the next two years. That's what the outcome is that they're statistically modeling. And the data that they have, which is stream of payment data, so for example, data from your bank or from other loans that you're paying off, credit cards and things like that, that data actually does a very good job of predicting who is going to default. So if people are missing payments and things like that, those sorts of factors are good at predicting. So in other words, the models work pretty well. The interesting challenge there is that Not everybody has credit cards or bank accounts. And so there's this whole population known as the unbanked, if they don't have any, or the underbanked, if they sometimes use mainstream financial services and other times might rely on a payday lender or something like that, what are known as fringe providers. The people who don't have bank accounts, the people who don't have credit cards, the model might not know how to assess them. And so it might be unable to offer a loan, even to someone who might be very likely to pay it back, just because they don't have data about that person. And so one thing that people are trying to do actually is to expand a little bit the kinds of data that lenders look to when they decide who gets a loan. And in particular, there's certain kinds of other data 
that are probably fairer to use. So for example, have you paid your power bill? Have you paid your phone bill? These are things that give you a stream of payments data picture of a person over time. And if someone is, let's say they don't have a bank account, but they always pay off their phone bill every month and they always pay their power bill, that's a pretty good sign that this is a person who is very likely to be able to pay off a loan. Well, and that doesn't feel like a radical expansion of the existing model either, right? So if you're looking at uh, payment history information on in different credit forms versus payment stream information for your power bill, those don't feel totally different. But I know there are companies that are trying to get a little bit more creative. And I think um, I might be misattributing it, but I know that one of the companies found that applying for a mortgage in all caps, so not using sentence case, but just all capital letters was was a big predictor of of default. Should we feel comfortable with those kinds of insights or? I don't believe that that is a real insight. I think it's marketing fluff. In that case, I think that we haven't seen substantiation of those companies' ability to do the things that they claim that they can do. You know, famously, one of the people, uh, a former Google executive who uh, led a company called, or may still uh, lead a company called Zest Finance, liked to go to industry conferences and tell people that, quote, all data is credit data. And I mean, I don't doubt that they can look at huge corpus of data and observe that in the data they have, there's a correlation between capitalizing letters and and loan performance. But the real question is whether that's predictive for future borrowers, right? And also whether it can legally be used. And thirdly, whether even if it is it has some signal or is predictive, does adding that signal actually improve the model overall? And we haven't seen hard evidence that those sorts of things are actually helpful in, in lending. One reason why we don't yet have that kind of information is because, as I mentioned before, the regulations are sufficiently stringent that there's not a lot of appetite for trying new kinds of data. Well, and I would love to hear more about, so we now know that there are all these problems with both the data, perhaps the data models, the outcomes they're predicting, and of course, marketing. So everybody who's offering a product that uses these is giving the hard sell. So I'd love to hear both, again, at the individual level and at the regulatory level, what we could do to be better, more skeptical consumers. So, you know, you'd mentioned regulatory agencies there. Can you talk about what that would look like in a perfect world for you? Sure. I mean, do you want to pick a domain for us to think about? Why don't we kick off with the one we were just ending on, which was loans, like home loans. Right. So let's say we have some new model. So first of all, in that case, there's already a set of rules around what data can be used to make these decisions. And so there's a question about how do you expand that set of data or when do you expand it? But let's, let's set that aside and let's just ask, how do we know whether it works or not if someone wants to use new data? Because, of course, that's got to come first, is do we even have a tool here that's going to help us do the job we need to do? And so, you know, in order to do that, what you need is you need to look at the new data that you're hoping will give you clues about repayment. And at the same time, you also need to look at repayment of those same people in order to see what the correlations are. So if we're predicting which of these people, let's say we we take a snapshot in time and we say, I want to assess this group of people and score them right now. And what I want to have those scores mean is I want it to mean what's the likelihood that they're going to default on a loan in two years from now. So in order to be able to do that, we actually have to wait a couple of years and Mm -hmm. have the outcome data of who did default on a loan within two years and who didn't do it. And then we can start to, and this is, this is known as supervised learning. We can start to group together the people who did default and the people who didn't. And we can look for patterns that tell the two groups apart. But if we don't know who actually ends up defaulting on a loan, then it's hard to build a good prediction. But then what do you even do with that information? So I think back to uh, when I was in graduate school, I studied with Josh Aronson, who did some of the stereotype threat research, which shows that standardized testing 
may not be as predictive of college success for African-Americans, for instance. And so there is differential predictive validity. So standardized tests can predict, are better predictors of some groups than others. So at the end of this two years, what you could imagine that one might find, oh, this model did teach us a lot about these, for instance, common sort of typical group members, but maybe it wasn't as predictive for this, this minority population. And here I don't mean minority like African-American, I mean like a small subset that we don't have a lot of information about. What do we do with that? Like, where do you go from there? Right. I mean, I guess in part, this is a methods question in data science. And so, you know, these are the sorts of things that technical research in the area of machine learning looks to. One example of a kind of thing you can do is what's known as a stratified sample. So in other words, you know that there are groups that are different and where you only have a small number of people in that group. And so your, your ability to statistically generalize, like let's say I have a study where I have enough college students, but I only have a few college students who are black who are in that sample. I might decide if I have reason to think that the experience of black students might be different, then maybe I need to recruit more of those students into the training set or go get additional data about how that group in particular is doing so that I can see those differences. And that's, you know, it's really interesting because I think for lay people, we sometimes imagine that the numbers sort of speak for themselves. And when you talk to data scientists, what you hear is the opposite. Data scientists will say the data requires massaging and interpreting. And people will talk about this question of incorporating ground truth. This is a Ground truth is a term that data scientists often use, which is to say, how do you take advantage of what you know about the data? And so the example that you just raised would be a, a terrific one is, okay, I'm trying to figure out about student achievement, but I know that black students have different kinds of experiences. So because I have that ground truth, I'm going to decide that I need more data about that group because it may have a different pattern. Why did I go get more data about them? It wasn't because of something inside the data. It was because of something that I knew about the world. And how and when to make those kinds of adjustments, that's where the sort of art of data science lives, is in a lot of those kinds of decisions. So what else can a skeptical, you know, educational board, local government agency Uh, owner at a company, how else can people be skeptical well of these data models? So I think one question that often doesn't get talked about, but is usually worth asking is, uh, do we even need AI to address this problem? Is a model the best way for us to address this problem? So if, for example, the question is about Who's going to go to jail? The bottom line problem is that we send way more people to jail than we should. And everybody who looks at this problem knows that our patterns are way off. So, you know, do we want to be turning a mirror on those patterns and perpetuating the way that we do things now? Or do we want to be using other kinds of policies in order to change the pattern? So, for example, it might be that we would let people out of jail who are only accused of minor crimes. And that might totally change, you know, the pattern of who's in jail. And it might not require a statistical model at all. I think sometimes people assume that an unsolved problem needs a new technology. And sometimes that might be true, but sometimes it's not. And so a good question if you're a layperson is, or if you're a policymaker, Have we even checked whether new technology is really the way to address this problem? What are some other red flags people could look out for if they're in the evaluation process here? I think, you know, if the people making the model can speak clearly about what the limitations of the model are, that's a good sign. If they aren't able or willing to be candid about the gory details of what their data is actually measuring and where it actually comes from and what its limits are, then uh, that's, that's a red flag because sometimes people sort of 
want to direct attention away from the limits and the challenges. Whereas, ironically, people who are more responsible in the way that they use data and the way they make models tend to be more modest in what they claim that the models can measure or what the data can do because the realities are more modest. There are limits to what data can do. So it's ironic. Sometimes it can seem like the people doing the best job are doing the worst job because they'll tell you, oh, my model has all these limits. Whereas, you know, someone who's just sort of a salesman might say, oh, my model's perfect. And of course, perfect sounds better than lots of limits, right? But usually, usually the one who's being honest about the limits is probably going to do a better job for you. And you're probably going to end up understanding the problem better when you have that. What is the political system doing in this era and what should it be doing? So I, I would imagine that this is, you know, sort of a brave new world. And you could imagine that perhaps a set of regulatory policies or at least guidance might be helpful. Do you feel like America, I guess, is doing enough? And if not, what should we be doing? I think that it's, you know, in Europe, they have a kind of one size fits all approach to regulating data. They have the general data protection regulation, GDPR, you might have heard about. And in the US, we tend to take a much more case by case approach. So, for example, we were talking earlier about lending. And there are special rules about the data used in lending and the models and the predictions that are used for credit. And I think thus far, that approach has served us pretty well. And so what that really has us do is respond to problems once the problems are clearly described. And so, you know, I think that's usually not a matter of government acting first. I think what we really need to be making sure we're doing is devoting the resources so we can understand these problems clearly and understand what solutions might look like. So one example of something that is very exciting to me is that the people who did the investigative journalism on pretrial risk assessment and found racial bias there are starting up a new nonprofit to do data-driven journalism where they're going to you know, use FOIA to get data or they're going to scrape data from different places and really do journalistic investigations that are based on analysis of that data. And I think that new ventures like that are the kinds of things that can build the conditions for at some later time for government to come in and regulate wisely. Who do you think is doing a great job in this space? You know, who are you impressed by either on maybe as a company or a product or, or a government that's taking these concerns seriously and maybe even setting best practices? You know, it's hard to say. There are no clear paragons of virtue in the space. There's this thing called the Partnership on AI that's a, an effort to get companies and data scientists inside companies to be in contact with NGOs. And that's in its early days, and I'm involved in that. And, you know, that might be helpful. And, you know, Google and Microsoft and Amazon and IBM, Facebook, people are all there. But I think, I mean, so I'll give you an example of something that, you know, I, I think has been a, a good example, let's say. Is and this is maybe not exactly AI, but sometimes the real problems aren't exactly AI. That's one of the things. Policymakers sometimes use AI to basically mean anything with software in it. And as, as annoying as that is for engineers who want to be more precise, we have to sort of meet the public where they are in terms of how these terms get used. But anyway, with Airbnb, I would point to an example. They had a problem, have a problem, where people have discriminatory preferences about who they want to allow to stay in their house. And so Airbnb for a while was a place where there was significant racial bias that was being repeatedly documented in the press where people were getting turned down for housing because they were black and, or so it seemed. So, you know, a black person would get turned down and then someone white would come along and get that same, those dates, you know suddenly not busy anymore. And Airbnb ran a whole uh, investigation and did an internal audit. And they now have a technical team of engineers working on making user experience changes and making changes to the design of the system 
to try and reduce the extent of bias in the system. And I think that's the kind of exploration, the kind of investment that it's, it's good to see companies making. So David, uh, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests as we wrap up. Uh, and because, so innovation for all, one of the things we encourage people to do is to be open-minded and to consider new points of view, even if they don't accept them. What is something you've recently changed your mind about? Well, you know, a few years ago, when Upturn first began to work on criminal justice issues in the wake of Ferguson, there was this big push to put digital video cameras onto police uniforms. And we thought at Upturn, as many other people did at the time, that if you have video footage of police encounters, it's going to make police more responsible because ultimately if there's misbehavior, if there is oppression, if there are harms happening, then there's going to be evidence and people are going to be able to hold police accountable. And at the time, activists who were more in the grassroots, less in the Washington setting, they told us, no, any tool, any resources that are given to large police departments are going to be used in ways that favor the police and don't challenge their authority. Um, And it turns out that the grassroots activists were exactly right about this. So there's been all kinds of mischief. People turning their camera off and then, and then something bad happens, officers turning the camera off, or uh, officers turning sideways so that the video doesn't show what's happening, and then saying something like, why are you reaching for my gun? When in fact, the person might not be reaching for their gun at all. There have even been cases where the video seemed to show a fight between an officer and someone in the community, but it turned out that they weren't actually standing up and fighting. What had happened was that the person was pinned to the ground and the police were beating them. And But it looked, because the camera was on the officer's chest, it looked like they were standing up. So, you know, it turns out that a lot of these social problems are not going to get solved overnight through technology. And that sometimes even very advanced technology might not be helpful to solving the social problem. And so, you know, I wish we had seen that more clearly and seen it sooner. Gosh, one would hope that those would be rare sets of circumstances, but it sounds like you're saying that they weren't all that rare. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, most police activity is really, really boring. Most of the time, there's not a violent crime happening. There's not any kind of uh, challenge to, you know, anyone. Uh, But I, I think that when something goes wrong, the question is, how often are body cameras helpful? And the answer is nowhere near all or most of the time. A lot of the time, the footage is not accessible to someone who wants to make a complaint. I mean, there are all kinds of problems there. And so I think, you know, it it has occasionally been helpful. But for the most part, accountability comes from social change, not from technological change. Hmm. Well, I'm wondering because the push for body cameras did seem to come with a social push. It did. And there was, a, there was disagreement within the advocacy community about whether body cameras were good or bad. And I think, you know, one of the things that happened is there were people who saw that money could be made in the body camera business, who then kind of picked up this idea and ran with it. And one of those companies was Taser, the people who make the electric shocker devices. They have become the largest body camera company in the United States. They actually renamed themselves Axon, uh, which is the name of their body camera business. And they want to do AI to recognize everybody, That's a whole other issue, which might be of interest to us here. There's a question when you have a live video feed about whether you're going to do uh, facial recognition on people walking by. And I guess the idea is that you could find out if someone has violated their parole or something like that. The officer could get alerted in real time. Or if the central database thinks this person is dangerous, then the officer could get some kind of a warning. And 
at first it might sound like that's a, a good idea, but the problem is that, uh, well, I mean, there's several problems, but one big problem is that the uh, data that's used to recognize faces is a racially unrepresentative data set. And so it's more likely to make mistakes when it's trying to recognize a face of someone who is black or brown than when recognizing someone who is, is white. And the way the law works for policing is that if the police think that they're under threat, then they can basically use force with impunity, including really up to deadly force if the officer believes that, that their own life is, is in danger. So if you're going to build an AI that's going to create a lot of fear and produce warnings for officers, and if we know that some of that warning and some of that fear is going to be put there by mistake, then the reality is that the AI is likely to get members of the community injured or killed. And so Upturn recently partnered with a bunch of advocacy organizations in order to respond to Axon, because Axon had created what they are calling an AI ethics board and had said, this board, this advisory board is going to help us to do facial recognition and body cameras in an ethical way. And what the advocates said in response, and Upturn helped to write this letter, is we said facial recognition real time for an officer in the field is inherently unethical to deploy, right? There's no good housekeeping seal of approval that's going to make this morally defensible. And what you need to do is just don't do it, right? Sometimes the right answer is just no. And actually, in this case, Axon has, after a significant amount of pressure, including from its own ethics board, they have said, we're not pursuing facial recognition and body-worn cameras. Of course, I mean, that could change, but for now, they've backed off. Mm. So I want to be mindful of the time. So on Innovation for All, we're interested in having conversations on this intersection between technology or big ideas and social issues. And as you, you may have noticed today, we've focused a lot on sort of social justice issues. Who are two people you think we should speak to on the podcast? I would tell you that Hannah Sassaman would be a great uh, interview for you to do. She's a community activist in Philadelphia who's working on risk assessment issues there and community governance of risk tools. Another person uh, who would be wonderful is Christian Lum, who is a data scientist at the Human Rights Data Analysis Group. And Christian really uses her skills as a data scientist to advance the cause of, uh, of justice. Those both sound like super cool guests. Thank you. Uh, is there a resource you could suggest if someone wants to learn more about what you do? Absolutely. So Upturn has a weekly newsletter called Equal Future. And people can sign up by going to equalfuture.org. And what we do there is just give very short, punchy little pointers to things that we think are interesting and are worth reading. And sometimes we'll say a word or two about why we think that this thing is interesting. But the whole update is short and easy to scan, and uh, people tell us that they find it useful. So that's equalfuture.org. And if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at DG Robinson. And in general, not hard to find on Google if you add up turn to my name. Is there more than one David Robinson out there? <laughs> there are a few. I've, I've gotten fan mail from badly confused basketball fans. <laughs> over the years. That's funny. I'm literally the only Shayna Alkvist on earth, so I can't empathize. But, and is, you know, I, I really appreciate your time. Is there any other ask you might have for the audience? I guess just going back to the thing that we said earlier about people being willing to ask questions, even if they're a little bit afraid that they might look silly. We all would be in a better world if we all were a little more willing to highlight our uncertainties and ask about what we don't understand and really make the unknowns more visible. So if you're listening to this, the next time you're tempted 
to say, or you're saying to yourself, wait, I'm not sure how this really works. Ask that question out loud. And I think that's a real contribution. David Robinson, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Shannon. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. If you are, you can help us out by visiting Innovation for All on iTunes and leaving us a review. See you soon. Oh, 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 oh,